Hey everyone, Pastor Matt here. You are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Canton. Our prayer is that the Word of God would both transform you and equip you to live a life unleashed for the glory of God. Our desire is that this content would not be a substitute for your regular gathering with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, that it would be a supplemental boost to encourage you as you seek to follow Jesus. Thanks for listening. Now grab your Bible and let's jump into Scripture together. Good morning, church. Great is His faithfulness. Amen. Even though we are sometimes faithless, right? He is faithful. And our faithlessness does not nullify His faithfulness. Amen. Can anybody testify to that in their life? For those of you that don't know me, my name is Chris Layton. And my family and I have been attending the Evangelical Free Church of Canton since 2015. And my wife, Erica, and two girls, uh, Leah and Mariah, are sitting right over there. And uh, it's been a joy to be able to serve you uh, in this community for many years. I've served on the, the worship team. Is, is, I also served as an elder at one point in time. And uh, for some reason, Pastor Matt has asked me back up here to speak to you all for, again. Uh, not sure what he was thinking. But it is truly a joy and an honor to be able to serve. And to serve in, in this capacity, I want God's word to be proclaimed, as all of you do. And one of the things that I appreciate, and I say this every time that I'm up here, is that we at the Evangelical Free Church of Canton hold highly and hold highly in regard the word of God. And there's a movement and there has been a movement over the years to to get away from preaching the word of God. But we as a church believe that God has spoken through his word and that everything that is written within this book, this collection of books that we call the Bible is true. It testifies to the fact that it is true. And we believe it is true. And we want to live our lives in accordance with the guidebook that God has given us. Amen. So what I want to do before I start is I want to make a a little bit of shift, an announcement. Pastor Matt did say that we were going to have the potluck right after the service. But I thought it would be interesting is what we could do instead is we could postpone that potluck until about 4 p.m. That way we can fast Right during this time until that time, right, and, and extend the service. Anybody up for that? I don't see any hands. Oh, there's one hand. All right. Anyway, joking aside, today we are going to be continuing through the the book of First Peter, and I've really enjoyed the book of First Peter. I hope that many of you have as well. Because it holds such practical information that we can apply to our lives daily. Even though they may be very, very hard truths, right? Simple in concept. Very difficult in application. But just to reiterate, First Peter was written to the church. Right? To the exiles. That would be in modern day Turkey. In chapter 1 we discussed being born again to a living hope. 
We were, we were and are called to be holy as God is holy. In chapter 2, Peter highlighted the illustration as Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And he challenged believers to a godly idea of submitting to authorities. Also in chapter 3, he exposited on the healthy relational dynamics of husbands and wives and how we ought to serve one another. Finally, Peter talked about the suffering Christ. Pastor Matt challenged us with a very basic but powerful question last week. Is Jesus enough? Did anybody ponder that question this week? That's a, that's a very, very simple question, but a very tough question, right? To reflect upon, is he enough? We may profess oftentimes that truth, but the question is, do we actually possess that truth? So now here we are, entering into chapter 4. And before we get into chapter 4, let me pray. Father God, we are thankful to be able to be in your presence. We're thankful as we sang this morning that you are faithful. And we're thankful that you are faithful because we know that we struggle with faithfulness. But we rely on the blood of Christ, that you see us through his blood. We hold highly your word. And Lord, we just pray this morning that the words on this, in in your Bible, your word would be manifest in our hearts, that we would glean something today that would not just change our minds, but it would change our hearts, and that we'd actually do something about that. So Lord, help us as we seek to serve you in all that we do and say this morning. In the name of Christ, amen. So first off, open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in a flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So we're going to go through this verse by verse. And the beginning starts with saying, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So in this first verse, there are three main points. 
Number one, Christ's suffering in the flesh. Number two, arming ourselves with the same way of thinking. Third, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So first off, we're going to talk about Christ's suffering. At the very beginning, it says, since therefore. Since therefore, obvious means, obviously means that he's referring back to something, right? So he's referring back to the passage that immediately precedes this. And that passage was preached upon last week by Pastor Matt, which is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. So I just want to read that one more time as we could uh, rehash what we learned about last week. So that says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared and making a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may put you to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might be brought to us, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having subjected to him. And now we can read, since therefore Christ suffered, referring back to the previous passage. So what we can understand from the suffering Christ is that all over scripture, we are faced with the reality of this suffering servant, the one who was to come in prophecy and the revelation and fulfillment of the coming to pass in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reiterates this point in chapter five, commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. In verse 11, this is what he says. He said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. So suffering, especially for this group of exiles in a foreign land, was something to be expected, was something to be embraced, and was something to be endured, as Christ set the example of what that looks like. So, what we're talking here is exactly what Pastor Matt was talking about last week in the suffering of of Christ. But it doesn't end there because it talks about the suffering of Christ, but then immediately in the verse it says, arm yourselves with the same 
way of thinking. Arm ourselves with the same way of thinking as who? As Jesus. Now this is the only time in this whole sermon that I'm going to be using a Greek word. I'm not a Greek expert, but I thought it would be interesting to point this out here. That arm in the Greek means hiplizo. And it's a, it's a Greek word translated into arm, which interestingly enough is the only time in the, this Greek word is used in the entire New Testament I found. This word has the concept of equipping. Not just equipping, but equipping with weapons. Preparing for battle. When you prepare for battle, it's a serious occasion. He could have used a more benign term, but perhaps nothing else would have gotten the point across. He says equip as if you're going into battle with the same way of thinking about Jesus' suffering as Jesus thought. The NIV says with the same attitude. If you want to look at it from a different perspective. The the NASB says with the same purpose. So with the same attitude, with the same purpose, with the same way of thinking, we ought to think about suffering from Christ's perspective. Peter exhorts us to have the same thoughts about suffering as Christ. Christ knew that he must die in the flesh. And he gave warnings all over the New Testament about his future suffering that would eventually bring about salvation. He also gave several warnings to his disciples and us that if we stand for him, we stand against the world and against the culture. Picking up a cross and dying to self each day is not glamorous, but it is essential in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we must have the same way of thinking, knowing that this place that we wake up to each day is not our home. In suffering, in persecution, etc., for Christ's sake, is expected. It's expected, but let's remember that it also is temporary. Remember the words of Paul when he said, The sufferings of this present world are not worthy in comparing to what is to come. So we must have an eternal, not temporal, way of thinking when it comes to suffering. It also goes on to say in the scripture, in verse 1, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Before going too far, let's talk about the difference of suffering. Because there's many ways, right, that we could be suffering. It's evident in Scripture that some suffering is brought about by the fall in our own human nature. In many cases, suffering is used by God as a punishment. An example of this would be the plagues of Egypt. Or what about David losing his son? What about Ananias and Sapphira when they lied? There are certain points to where suffering can be because of our sin. Potentially some of us have experienced that kind of suffering. 
But that's not what Peter is talking about here. Peter is talking about suffering for righteousness sake. Just what we talked about earlier. In other words, to suffer for doing good. This, ta- this, this particular passage talks about suffering in the flesh. Now this is a difficult passage because the biggest challenge of this passage, in my opinion, is trying to address what does it mean to cease from sin? Has anybody in here ceased completely from sin? If so, please raise your hand. Not even one. So another interpretive challenge is that we are challenged to think in the same way as Christ did about suffering. And our suffering is being compared to Christ's suffering. But we differ greatly from Christ, right? We are full of sin. He was without sin. Right? The scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that he might become the righteousness of God. 1 John 3.5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So this can't possibly mean In my estimation, based on the totality of scripture, that this is absolutely something that we can be void of sin in our lives. We can't attain a sense of earthly perfection. So what does it mean? So what I think this means, and I really had to think hard about this and do some research on this. But ultimately what I think it means, and I think it's summed up very well in John MacArthur's commentary. This is what I gleaned from what he had to say. The idea was that believers' demonstration, willingness, and endurance of suffering proves their commitment to the gospel. Therefore, ceasing in the moment from sin. Okay? So... Based on scripture, right, First John, it says that if we say we have no sin, we're a liar. So the truth is that all of us have sin. But we have been given the Holy Spirit. Those of us that have believed upon the name of Jesus have been given the Holy Spirit. The ability now to say no to sin, where before we did not have that capability, right? Our default mode was sinfulness. Now we've been given the Spirit, able to, in some ways, cease from that sin. And what I believe this means is that if we suffer, we're choosing to suffer for the name of Christ. In that moment, we progressively are living a lifestyle that is more and more free from our sinful nature. But we can't cut off the sentence there because... I addressed where it said, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. But it also says, so as, is the next sentence. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This seems to be indicative of an increasing and progressive commitment 
to honor God by doing it his way and not our own way. Peter uncovers something here. When talking to the exiles, there was a possibility of suffering leading to death. And suffering not leading to death. In this context, it talks about the suffering that allows the believer to keep on living. But as they live, they are no longer to live according to their own sinful and selfish nature, but for the will of God. So the question is, how do we as believers live for the will of God? God communicates, as mentioned earlier, primarily through his word. He has given us all this, right, to live a God-honoring life. He has given the guidebook of what he demands and requires and expects. We've we've continually preached and will continue to preach God's word. And Pastor Matt gave a great illustration several weeks ago talking about the cow chewing the cud and digesting and regurgitating. And that's what's expected from us to really dive in deep to God's word and to explore the deep things of God so that we can put those things into practice. The goal is not so that we can become smart and that we can win intellectual arguments, but that we could show and be the hands and feet of Christ by doing what His Word requires. So moving on to verse 2. Moving on further into verse 2. Actually, verse 3. For this time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So Peter illustrates a dichotomy between Gentiles and us, the believer. In other words, he shows there should be a stark difference between those of Christ and those that are without Christ. As we read this long list of sins, they may not be foreign to any of our pasts. Many of us have lived in overtly sinful patterns in the past and perhaps some of us are still stuck in some of those sinful patterns. We're unable to rid us from the bondage because we aren't willing to give up the things that we enjoy. We treasure our sin more than the giver of life. In fact, in Paul also addresses something similar in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11 a very similar message he says or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God but here comes the good news and such were some of you But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and by the Spirit of God. Paul and Peter's message is very consistent. They both illustrate significant life changes that happen when you meet the risen Christ. So let's unpack some of these sins. Because sometimes I think that we can read through a list like this and kind of gloss over the true meaning and maybe not have the historical context of what he was talking about. So I want to unpack a little bit about what each of these sins that he's referring to references. So the concept of sensuality is the very first one he mentions is, is, is basically in the word. It's sensual. According to the dictionary, relating to or involving gratification of the senses and physical, especially sexual pleasure. So unrestrained bondage to pleasures of the senses. This could be pornography. This could be adultery. This could be drugs. This could be alcohol. The addictions to those things. Passions. This term can also be translated as lusts which entail those inward heart conditions or passions that wage war against our soul. And often internal and not known, but may lead to external manifestation. Drunkenness. That's kind of an easy one to define. This, of course, is the habitual overindulgence to the point of intoxication of alcoholic beverages. Right? Orgies. This this refers actually to what I've read in some commentaries, to the partaking in wild parties. The extra-biblical sources suggest this term was likened to a band of drunken people that sang loudly and wildly going collectively in the streets. It's interesting. Drinking parties, the sole reason, of course, getting together and to become intoxicated. Lawless idolatry. Perhaps the worship of false gods that plague the land and is all over scripture when people worship false idols. The main point though here is not the shock value about what the Gentiles are partaking in, right? The shock value isn't that they're doing all of these things. The, the, the point here is to bring attention that non-believers are surprised when Christians do not join in on the same kind of overtly sinful behaviors, even to the point that they will malign you. So sin, as I mentioned earlier, is the default mode of non-believers. They do not have the Holy Spirit. At once, we did not have the Holy Spirit. They cannot, by nature, they don't have the Spirit, do what God has commanded Thus, they are shocked, they are perplexed that we do not join in on the crowd. In fact, they don't like it so much that this actually could lead to them slandering you. Perhaps this isn't in front of you, but behind your back in settings where you're not present. My challenge to you and the challenge to myself is are you living up to this expectation? Are you living up to this expectation? Are you distinctly different than that of the norms in the culture? Or are you doing the same things as the culture? 
or as the Gentiles, as the scripture would say, are doing. Are the non-believers surprised that you do not partake? Or, or are your fellow Christians surprised that you do partake? Are you standing out? Or are you blending in? We've heard it said, I'm sure you have too, many of you. If you were on trial and accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Bad company corrupts good morals. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The key here is that if you have an encounter with Jesus Christ, there should be a great evidence that that has taken place. This evidence is manifested in the reality that we are called to a higher calling. We are ambassadors of Christ. Our home is a foreign land. We're just here temporarily. We are called to be peculiarly... Let me say that word again. I'm not going to say it. We're called to be distinctly different. Okay? Had a little porky pig moment up here. And, and this may cost you, right? You may be maligned. You may be slandered. You may be made fun of. You may be persecuted. But guess what? Treasuring God and pleasing Him far outweighs pleasing man. There are eternal rewards to be distinctly different. Pleasing man is a very temporal thing. So let's move on in the passage. It says that, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh, the the way people are, they might live in the spirit the same way God does. So Peter speaks of this ultimate justice of God. Atheism believes in a solely material universe. That is, it's the outcome of atheism essentially is there is a lack. There is no ultimate justice. In their worldview, someone can be a despicable human being, do the most heinous of acts, Never get caught, and it won't matter because there is no final reckoning. I'm sure this view gives people great comfort pretending that they can disbelieve God out of existence. Therefore, they are no longer to be ultimately accountable for their actions. The fallacy in this is that no one can believe or disbelieve anything into existence. Something is either true or it is false, right? Something is true or false, and our belief does not define reality, but it's an acknowledgement of that. Our belief in God doesn't make him appear. The truth that he exists and he is real is the reason why we believe that, right? Simple concept. 
talks about judgment within this passage. And God himself made it very clear that every person will be held accountable for their actions. So to drive this home, I want to read a few passages about judgment. So 2 Corinthians 5.10 talks about the judgment seat of Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Last verse I'll mention on judgment is Matthew 12, verses 36 through 37. I tell you, on that day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words... You will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Now, we're not going to get into a big theological debate, discussion about judgment. I'm sure that we could spend an entire sermon, if not an entire sermon series, talking about the judgment of God. That's not what we're talking about today. So, what I do want to bring up, though, is that we all... Will be accountable. The believers and non-believers. Ultimately we will face. Being in front of the great judge. That should be a very sobering thing. For all of us to think about. We will be held accountable. But Peter. In this specific case. Is not talking about. The believer. He's talking about the unbeliever. They may not encounter justice in this lifetime, but they are storing up wrath, as the scripture says, in the day of wrath that will be poured out against them and against those that commit such sins. So I just want us to have a sobering thought that ever be reminded daily that we will ultimately stand before a holy and righteous judge. Continuing, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the same way God does. So this is a, this is a tough one. Very tough one. The, the last major point I want to explore is what does it mean for this, for, for this is why the gospel was preached even to the dead? It's a very hard thing. To, to wrap your mind around and dig into. 
But the NIV has some uh, interpretive liberties that they've taken. And they make it a little easier for us to potentially understand this. Um, they say that preached even to those that are now dead. So what does this mean? What does this mean that the, the gospel is being preached to those that are, that are dead? So I did a little bit of research into this as well. And I believe the dead that they are referring to here were Christians. That were once alive but had died. Perhaps through persecution. They may be dead in the body but mostly alive of course. Most alive in the spirit. These were believers that were waiting, awaiting the final judgment. It is evident from scripture and I believe Matt talked about this last week that we only get one chance. Right? It's appointed unto death right to man to death to die one time and then the judgment comes and he talked about also the parable that jesus told about lazarus and the rich man and it talked about that there's this chasm there's this uncrossable barrier that once you've died that that's it the decision has been made your fate has been sealed So interpretively, why would Jesus be preaching the gospel to those that weren't already Christians and to the dead? If they had no ability to change their fate and believing in the gospel. So I want to transition now from... going through the passage to summarizing and thinking about some challenges that we will face this week as far as from the text. I want us to go away with thinking about some main points and really thinking about and digging into some of these things that I'm about to say. So as I, as I do this, I'd like the worship team to, to make their way up. So the first, first thought, right, that we talked about is we must arm ourselves the same way of thinking as Christ. So I want all of us to really have a biblical understanding of suffering. Am I suffering for sin or am I suffering for righteousness sake? If for righteousness sake, then God promised, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. He said it. We believe it. Number two, live not to our human passions, but to the will of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about lust. And he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. This is a call to take drastic measures. To put our human, ungodly passions to death. Know what God's word says. And through the Holy Spirit, commit to doing it. Third, are you blending in or are you standing out? Is there a difference the world notices about you? Or do you blend in to the non-Christian world? We are called to be holy and separate. God says, be holy as I am holy. 
Finally, understand that there is a final judgment. Yes, those that slander us will have ultimate accountability to God. However, the sobering thought is that every one of us will be judged. May this inform and influence how we act on a daily basis. And may this give us hope when we see the wicked prosper. The good news is that God made a way. Even though there's an ultimate judgment. We all will be judged, but the good news is that he provided a way through Jesus Christ. Amen? And that we are seen, those of us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we believe upon his holy name. We have been saved. We are no longer under condemnation. Yes, we still struggle with sin, but progressively putting sin to death, relying on his faithfulness. Relying on his sinless perfection. He accomplished what we could not. Living a sinless life. Taking the punishment that we deserved. Hanging on the cross. Taking on the sins of the world. But it didn't end there. Right? As he died upon the cross and yielded his spirit to God. Three days later. What happened? The stone was rolled away, amen? And that we can have the newness of life. He was the firstborn of all creation, resurrected. And we, you, can have that same fullness of life, living for him. I know there's some of you in here that have never given your life to Jesus. And I would say today's the day. Today is the day. Wait no longer. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. There is only one way to the Father, and that's through him. So, believe upon his name, be saved, live for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word, as I spoke earlier. Ultimately, we're thankful for Jesus' righteousness. We could not accomplish what the, wall, what the law requires, but your son in sinless perfection accomplished bearing our sins. We are so thankful for that, that we can stand in your presence before the throne of grace, that you will not no longer give us what we deserve, but pour grace upon grace upon us, Lord. May we be committed to taking these things that were spoken about today in your word, And putting them into action. And that we can share that with others around us. May you be glorified this week as we seek to serve you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.